Collective Potential is about having real conversations with real people in real life. And we are a group of uh, good-looking cats that really just think that uh, we need to have more connected purpose-filled conversations. And so we're bringing in some people, one in particular, Mr. Elliot Costello from YGAP tonight. And I'm going to give an opportunity for him to share with what he loves, what's real for him and how he sees the world. And I thought that would be a very, very cool thing to kick off with. Connection. Real world. People everywhere. Collective potential. So yeah, I'm really excited about this to particularly talk about the Global Village, which is sort of emerged, which we can see through media, and also how YGAP is solving uh, problems both locally and globally, and like what Elliot's perspective is on that. Um, So yeah, let's jump into it. So, um, you know, the cool thing about Elliot is, um, how old are you, Elliot? 31 M. 31. Uh, Same <laughs> 31. Uh, and I always think that when you give somebody a bit of a setup, um, it, it's slightly embarrassing, but you've heard it all before. But Elliot is unbelievable for a 31 year old. He has been in the game of international development for quite a while, but he actually only stumbled onto it. Yes, it was a family um, influence, I, I believe, and you'll tell us a little bit more about that. But it's actually because you just give a shit. You actually care. Like I walked past you. I was, um, I knew you because I actually live next door to you. Um, I come to your events. I see everything that you're doing and I just consistently see a genuine care and passion for what it is that you do. And when Ryan said to me, you know, Ryan's our brain, but he's got all heart, you know, Jez is the crazy cat visionary here and I'm the facilitator that cares about people's transformation who do we want to get on board? And it was Elliot Costello. But I'll let Ryan, I'll give you flattering conversation the whole time, but I'll let Ryan give a little bit of gist of where he wanted to take this tonight. So, yeah, I thought we could talk about the global village, which we can see now through uh, social media and video and images, and we can see what's happening on the other side of the world. So we're not ignorant anymore. Um, and that's one thing I noticed about YGAP is how much, um, I was just curious to see how you guys have used the internet and use all the technology we have to facilitate uh, facilitate change in the world. Yeah, well, thanks um, for asking such a great question, Ryan. I think um, the best place to start is just with that term, global village. Um, in a time right now when the world is facing social ills and so many challenges, which we have throughout sort of humankind, but um, we're really forming, we're really retribalizing ourselves, um, groups around religion, groups around political nationhoods, um, identity, faith, we're, we're really moving back to these tribes. And so I'm glad you mentioned uh, a global village because we've seen the power of the internet and what we can do if we move away from nation borders, if we move away from cultural um, barriers, uh, move away from the notion of I'm a part of one sect and you're part mm. of another. So the whole notion that we are one humankind, and uh, I think for a greater intents and purposes, how powerful it would be if we actually found some type of extraterrestrial life right now, because <laughs> for the first time we might actually now come together. Now we're talking. That would be cool. <laughs> we actually might come together and yeah. realise that we're all the bloody same. Um, but what we do um, to bring about a, a unique uh, vision around the world and, and, and course tie people together based on a, a simple belief that we are all the same is um, look at the power of um, local entrepreneurship. 
And um, it's driven by the fact that since uh, the end of World War II, so post-World War II, a very colonial approach has happened. So what's happened with the breakup of Africa um, has it's essentially been that um, Western countries driven by people in New York, London, Geneva, Melbourne have viewed Africa and viewed Asia as the poor people that we need to support. Yeah. And so these development models are built around, well, you need a water sanitation program, you need an immunization healthcare program, you need an education program. We'll sit here halfway across the world and develop a response for you. And then they'll fly into Nenya, Rwanda, Katakrachi in Ghana, Metaklu in South Africa and say, this is the best way that you should run your lives. And it's completely wrong. And you know how I know this? I was instrumental at one point in running uh, the Make Poverty History concerts. Um, and I found that in those years, in 2006 to 2009, that I spent most of my life saying, hey, guys, we can make poverty history. Mm. Us Westerners can make their poverty history. And it took me a few years to understand that was was that the best awareness campaign or mm. to go down that path of as a Westerner and be like, my life is better. This is how we're going to do it. Mm. And it actually left me with a lot of questions and I stopped running a mm. lot of that work. So does, does that it, talk to almost what you're saying it does. here? I mean, there's a fine line. Some of these advocacy programs are really powerful in the sense that they actually bring awareness and they enable young people like yourself to understand the realities of, you know, 124 million children that are done yeah. under education well, every right. day. It did bring that into my life. Um, but it's the next step, you know, where does that change happen? Okay. And it, it mm. happens in the hearts and minds of local people by empowering them. Uh, by not offering sort of these handouts and keeping people locked in a state of poverty. Uh, So to answer your question, Ryan, how we achieve that um, is by simply facilitating solutions in local people's hearts and minds. And so we run startup accelerator programs in some of the world's toughest communities. Uh, We work in six countries around the world. Um, And our our direct motive is that we find and back local entrepreneurs. Uh, So nothing we bring to the field is driven by experts who have studied development masters around the world who have the answers to poverty and, you know, have done degrees in different universities. They're always driven by local people under a fundamental uh, belief that local people have the answers to local problems. Brilliant. That's so cool, man. I love the the headline there, which is real dear to my heart, which is unifying the world. Like, we are all the same. Like, you said that with such conviction and I I believe the same thing with with such deepness as well because, like, there's so many pillars of separation in our time through religion, through faith, through, like, like um, Christianity, Muslim, all this stuff, and or just political beliefs or local. There's so much segregation, but there's such little encouragement through media and through the powers that really shape the world of we are the same, you know, because that doesn't suit a financial agenda. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Right now, um, we're really being told uh, by Western leaders uh, driven by the media who are beating their drum that we're at war. Uh, and that we need to lock up our houses and put our kids away because we can't trust our neighbours. Stop the boats. Stop the boats and everything. We're, we're, we're in a state of isolation and we, we must be fearful. And, of, of course, as you know, Em, with your work at Collective Potential, every decision is governed by you know, basing that, a decision based on love versus fear. Yeah. And the easiest way to really control a society is by invoking fear. Um, and what's unknown about a lot of this crisis when, when we talk about... Or desire as well, right? Like fear or desire. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, what's unknown about a lot of this crisis which we're facing right now and this war against Islam versus the West is 
you know, it's it's completely the wrong conversation to be having. It's not Islam first the West. You know, if we want to isolate Muslims for their faith because a small minority are taking arms and we have to recognise that they are using religious doctrine and they are coming to the table and evoking um, certain amount of problems, especially against um, Sunni, uh, Shiites and Sunnis. Um, but the, the fact is, this is moderates first radicals. And it's as simple as that. It's radicals in Christianity, it's radicals in, is, in Islam, it's radicals in Judaism and other forms of beliefs that really we should be questioning. And radicals in um, government, radicals in um, political agendas. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a, it's a one interesting time. One apple doesn't spoil the bunch, is that it? <laughs> but we're, this, that's how a lot of people are thinking about it, right? Mm. That this apple is everybody's munching on this apple. I know this sounds so ridiculous, but I'm, I'm almost going down this. Is that every time I speak to you, Elliot, and this is why I was talking to the gents, that you have some amazing ways of looking at life. And I just want to hear them, you know, and this is part mm. of it, mm. is thinking about how it is sep- we're being separated and we're, we're narrow-minded in the way we see Muslims or Islam. Mm. You know, what do you say to the people who, um, okay, so on the weekend I had a, a friend of mine, nameless, said to me, you know, Emily, um, this M- Muslim woman came to my uh, door and he lives down in Nary Warren. Uh, long story short, the message was um, uh, her husband was beating her and so she told us that in the Islam religion that this is okay. Mm. And so this being this beautiful, open-hearted, you know, 30-year-old was like, you know, that's messed up. That's just all Muslims can't believe they do that. And so he was headed down the, the path of saying this is what all Muslims are and then he started discussing the conversation around terrorism and how it's all how, – how do you explain empathy to somebody like that that's just had an experience with a, one Muslim apple? Mm. Yeah, well, look, there's two sides of it. Um, Islam is a religion born in the 6th century in Saudi Arabia um, by Muhammad, you know, an illiterate man – 40 years old, had a night of revelations and, you know, really built that religion um, through an act of aggression, you know, fighting tribal warring leaders and um, rising up in Mecca, then Medina and spreading across Arabia. Fascinating. The, some of the issue there is that, you know, 1,400 years later, there hasn't been a reformation. There hasn't been any ability to have a conversation uh, about the Quran. And there are parts of the Quran that are very... Arabian, sixth um, century Arabian. So the views on women, views on children, uh, adultery, um, things that a lot of these extremists are acting out are written in the Quran. And so there does need to be a conversation around what's acceptable in sixth century Arabia. It may not be acceptable mm. now in 2016. Um, that doesn't accept the fact that a person can prescribe that all 1.6 million people are entitled to beat their wives. Um, it doesn't succeed the fact that any person that is committing domestic violence can is superior to the law. No. And when there's laws in places, irrespective of one's home or house, that you cannot assault a person, no. um, even in a, a marriage, mm. uh, fulfilling or unfulfilling. So it's unfortunately driven by the fear that we're told that uh, Muslims are out to get us, the Muslims are terrorists, they're attacking us, when you've got a very small sect of Islamist, um, military-driven Muslims who do want to live under live on a Sharia law, uh, which is a very small percentage of extreme Muslims, that doesn't mean that the, the conservative Muslims, the c- citizens of Islam, 
want to live under Sharia law. They don't. They, they want to live under democracy. They're secular mm. in their view and nature. So it's just it's just worth at this time um, challenging the view. It's, it's not worth arguing. It's just not worth debating. It's just worth educating. And it's a simple tool that most people can pick up and, and learn pretty quickly away from the Herald Sun or any news limited article at the moment, but just understand for people for who they are and, and by nature of talking to them. But it doesn't matter about your religion. You, you're not allowed to beat your wife. Mm. You know, there's there's no law that precedes the human condition that you should not be taking arms or aggression against any other human being, age, gender, or religion. Um, so yeah, it's just worth having that conversation. Mm. And we How- did we did go down that path just to wrap it up too. Was think about it. Um, it there's right and wrong. Mm. We should, don't need to put a whole religion into one category, do mm. we? And he was like, No, mm. we don't. Good. I'll think it through. When you're talking about how to create a more compassionate world um, and use something like the internet as a tool, how do you think we can use, this is to everyone, how do we use the internet for good and show good images and truth instead of just like showing, oh, these are the bad guys over and over and over? Mm. How's that change happen? You know, like how, yeah, that's just what I'm grasping with now. Well, it it is happening and that's uh, the power of... um, Yes, it is happening. (laughs) We've democratised the media. And so once upon a time, even a couple of decades ago, you know, there's only you know, a few mediums where you can digest what's going on in the world uh, or locally. And you were basically told what was going on from one journalist's point of view. Um, and there were large corporations who had vested interests owned by certain people, people that want to educate the public and convince them of their view. Um, the rise of social media, the democratization of um, media has enabled us as individuals, to all be con- content creators. And Jez, you would know that better than anyone else. Uh, so through petitions, through campaigns, through videos, we're, we're now breaking the rules and actually saying that anyone can be um, can generate content and, and share a message. And you see some powerful things happening online. Mm. And so we're not forced to believe what's told to us on the front page of the paper or what's on the 6pm news. And it's the reason why so many young people aren't watching the news. They're not reading the newspaper because there's so many mediums available of opinion pieces that differ from the view that certain people want you to digest. Do you think that... So the media, I, that, that's why I make podcasts, is because I'm so passionate about creating all these outlets, which they don't really... Not many of them exist in Australia, which I think is it's not ideal. Um but what about people who are using the media to spread violence and using it the other way? How do we use that tool? And is it, do we need to work, do people need to work on themselves inside? Um, and like, are we facilitating that as a country, do you think? Or is it just going to happen organically? Yeah. I mean, that's the, the debate around freedom of speech. You know, mm. um, we obviously want to democratize uh, media, but that also will open up a risk that those that want to incite violence can use the same tools that those that are trying to promote violence. And that's a fine line we walk. Um, and the debate that's happening between the U.S. government line. and Apple and, and Facebook, the big, the big U.S. corporations that don't want to pass on their, their privacy details for good reasons. Um, it's, it, is, uh, it is an interesting period we're going through right now. You know, what type of controls can be put in place to stop mass rallies, violent rallies being brought to, um, brought to the, uh, fruition through the use of media? Mm. Um, but it, it is a benefit of uh, the same tools that you have access to, to communicate. You know, you never know who's going to listen to this podcast. You never know whose mind it will hit, whose heart it will touch, and the impact mm. it will have on them too. So I think it's more about applauding every option we've got available now than trying to ridicule it. 
Mm, great. Because that's the creative mentality as opposed to the cynical or the destructive. But I, 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 admire, I love how you're on the front line making this change and I can sense your patience with it as well as anyone that's been doing it for as long as you have, mm. um, which is calming. So true. Um, I, if, if there was one thing, number one thing that you could like with your power change, like in, a, in an instant, um, what would that one thing be? Well, that's a great question. Um, like, if it was, if it's, a, if it's like people age, the next, you know, like, is it, do we focus on the current generation? Do we focus on the new ones, or because um, it's easier to change fresh minds than it is to change old minds? Mm. But or, or is if there's just one, I suppose, attribute of the broken world. I mean, there's pr- plenty of beautiful things about it too. But you know, like the broken world. Mm. What would you think? I'd uh, love to run an experiment and. Um, I would take... No, this is going to be good. I would take... Um, I'd, I'd flip the economy. So what I would do in saying that is I would take all citizens living in resource-rich countries, Australia being one of them, you know, top of that list, and put them in countries that aren't resource-rich. Which put the are, people. Put the people. Yeah. So flip the scenarios and you, you're taking your yeah. people in Somaliland, Botswana, Malawi, some of the poorest countries in the world, giving them access to resources here in Australia. Oh, that's such US, a smart idea because then we'll, we'll know what to do in the poor countries. I mean, we'll have a fairly good idea. Well, you assume we would. Yeah. Assume we would. You yeah, assume yeah, you yeah. would. And that's, that's, a, that's the common belief that just because that's they're true. living there, that <laughs> they're true. poor in mind and intellect. But seeing what happens and seeing the battle that we'd face, the daily struggles, waking up in the morning, having to walk six kilometers to find fresh water, fresh water having to force your child to work for six hours a day whilst getting an education, if getting an education at all, having to face maternal health problems where four out of ten young children will die before the age of five because of health care issues, we would face the same issues. Yeah. What if that was like a prerequisite for politics? <laughs> for politics or politicians? Like politicians. Um, politicians. <laughs> it, You're uh, not allowed in the office unless you've uh, experienced... I, I can't imagine Tony represent. Abbott and his budget smugglers <laughs> over in Botswana, <laughs> oh, yeah. and I don't want to really visualise it either. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so how long would you run the experiment for? You, you, that, that switch for, would you say just a year, then switch back? Or like, what's your idea? I think the only way you would switch it back is until there's an acceptance that... The people like us in Australia had spent enough time there to realise how they've got the conversation wrong, yes. to realise it's not an individual's fault why they're poor, and to realise that they've been born with the lottery of life, that ticket we've taken out to be born here in Australia or UK like you, Jez, and it's a complete lottery of life, that sort of real 2 to 5% of the upper, upper quartile that we live in here. We're and so rich. Yeah. yeah, so once... I wouldn't even put a time frame on it. I'd just do it until they literally put their hand up and say, we've got this conversation wrong. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's turn back around and actually think about, you know, how we have a, a conversation. Um, so in a lot of ways, you're saying the main, I mean, that's what I love out. Travel is that it opens your minds to think about other people's ways of life. Mm. Um, and so what you're doing is like a mechanism that flips everyone's mind to a more global earth mind. The other option is um, you take out... Uh, the whole structures of capitalism. We, we take yep. away the notion of money. Yep. We move back to a former barter system. So there, there is no greed. I mean, you know, two days ago we had the, the Panama crisis come about. Mm. 800 Australians, thousands of people around the world, sporting stars, politicians, some of the richest people in the world who are all now, including Putin and David Cameron's father and a bunch of other leaders, global leaders, who are now indicted with the fact that they've got money stashed in an illegal bank account, a tax haven in Panama. Um, and some people, including sporting stars that we turn to and idolise, are now basically being caught out for tax havens mm. and mm. uh, and 
throwing their money away in these accounts and hiding them and, and not declaring their tax. Um, so so you've thought about it, but taking that notion of money away, like what, why this perpetual, you know, we come into this world with nothing. We were born with nothing, not a bank account, not a dollar mm. to our name, and we have this perpetual belief that we have to die with so much. We work our whole lives nice. just to save money, save money, save money, to pass away, to face depression and misery and anxiety along the way, to die with so much. And so I love the notion, and M, we've probably all been into it, we have, a, we have a restaurant called Feast of Merit, which is a social enterprise owned and run by Wygap. But it's built on this belief uh, driven by the Nagans. And uh, Naga people have been, yeah. been fighting for independence for centuries. And um, it's, a, it's a very um, primitive culture, uh, literally a hilltop, hilltop, hilltop um, community between uh, Burma and India. And they were promised independence after centuries of fighting, uh, but were denied uh, because Mahatma Gandhi passed away uh, from an assassination earlier that year. And uh, they remain in a state of denial between Burma and India, strategically important because it pierces out over into China. But the long story short is they have this wonderful tradition, this remarkable convention that whenever you become the richest person in Naga community, so whenever you acquire a certain position of wealth, and that can be pro- measured by property, livestock, that you put a festival on. It's a festival for all the poor and disadvantaged people, and that can last for two, three, sometimes four weeks until everything you once had is shared with all the poor and disadvantaged people in your community. And you're bequested this golden cloak, and then you walk around town with a golden cloak, but you're starting again with nothing. And the whole notion is built on this belief that we come into this world with nothing. Why do we have to leave with so much? And it's this perpetual cycling of wealth. That when you get to the top, you sell everything, and you put a festival on for the poor people, and you start again with nothing. Beautiful. Beautiful. Really good article in the New Philosopher. And it was talking about how people are bidding for lots in cemeteries, (laughs) like these really expensive... Because there's no room in cemeteries anymore. Mm. Um, and they're spending a ridiculous amount of money to be buried there. And it's just like the whole capitalism in this. Um, so if you had to pick what it is, the, vir- the virus, that mentality, that mental illness that we have, that we've been in doubt given mm. for our culture, wh- where would you pinpoint it? Like, It's probably just re-evaluating our values. And um, I think what we're seeing playing out in the US right now, being you know April 2016, is a battle of ideologies. In the U.S. Mm. and, you know, we've seen two of the leading three candidates for the U.S. nomination for the President of the United States. It gets voted on the second Tuesday of um, November. One being a complete bigot and right-wing, beyond conservative, pushing all boundaries, breaking the norms, offending Muslims, disabled (sighs) people, Christians. Is that that Hillary Clinton? (laughs) (laughs) It's not. Dear Donald Trump. Trumpy Trump Trump. Mixed with this ideological battle of of, um, Bernie Sanders, who's presenting notions that are, you know, so far left of Obama that Americans can't even describe them as a socialist. They they literally are trying to find words beyond communists and everything in between. So putting proposals forward around spending a trillion dollars to in infrastructure projects, free healthcare for all, free college education, stuff that most of the world says that's pretty logical. <laughs> but for America, that's radical. So why are these two getting so much airtime? Why are these two literally at the point of so people will be potential forced elections? To pick the middle one. Well, no, what's happening in the middle is people are so sick of the establishment. People are so sick of the political rhetoric between this stock standard Republican Party and a Democratic Party that these two offer something outside the norm. It's something fresh, it's mm. something unique, and it's something so different to what the Republicans and the Democrats have sold to the American people decade after decade after decade. So the wow. issue there is it's so far right and so far left. But to come back to your question, 
when you're looking at some of Bernie Sanders' policies, it, it, it just really is questioning the value of a vote. You know, he won't take money from super PACs. He won't take money from Wall Street. He won't take money from foreign, um, foreign investments and all types of governments around the world who are, I won't name names, but are filling the bank accounts of certain nominees. And so it comes back to just questioning our values. And, and Bernie Sanders is offering that. You know, he, he refused to turn up to the super PAC convention with the Jewish lobbyists, who were one of the stru- strongest lobbyists in the world, who literally have a stranglehold on a lot of Washington. He's a Jewish candidate. He was the only nominee that didn't turn up to the lobbyist for the Jewish for the Jewish people to support Israel, because he said, "I'm not doing this. I'm not getting my Brilliant. self bought with votes and bought with money." So, very interesting question. Uh, it's uh, so I just come back to reevaluating what our values are. You know, we're reevaluating who we are. But our values are taught, right? So they're, they're taught, and they're, they're they're too hard to find the eye of the source. Mm. So they come through our parents, they come through their culture, they come through everything like that. So it's it's way more complicated than there isn't like one like i i point to things like the um the rothschild family or something you know like the highest of highs or the latest of the elites that are puppeteering most of the people downwards um i mean it's a, it's an interesting question because it's a question i know russell brand queries like mm. he is like Everything is not enough. He does is still not enough because the powers are unreachable. We don't even know the names that are pulling the puppet, you know, like moving the pawns. Mm. I was just listening to what you were saying about values and, Jez, there's a little bit of when I hear you ask, where's the evil, where's the evil eye, where's the problem? But you answered it with a solution of let's look at our values Mm. rather than pinpointing or taking blame because you can't, you can't, I don't think you one person, there is one answer, right? Um, but I would love the thought of people would come back to what they truly value rather than focusing on capitalism, materialism, which is kind of a, a problem that keeps happening to the evil. Anyway, I was interested about maybe even flipping it. If you were talking about Feast of Merits, which just to say I, I absolutely love the social enterprise of YGAP and then, of course, um, what Feast of Merit does. We heard that story before. It was stunning. And it said, what if we didn't have money? What if we took that out? But And what happens with you personally, right, as somebody who the organisation is about giving money out to, to other people? What about when you guys don't hit the profits for the week or you're, again, I'm not a businesswoman, but do you ever freak out about money yourself? Like are you, do you go off your values and start to worry about how much your expenses are and if you've got enough in your bank account. And, you know, it's almost the, the honesty around, does that happen to you? And how do you deal with it being that you try to live a more values-based lifestyle? Mm. No, it's a great question. And yeah. Look, I think... Um, it's a personal question. So you It is go. a personal question. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're being told right now by our politicians that Australians are doing it tough. Yeah. Uh, we've been told that, you know, oh, the... The mining, um, the mining boom's coming off, and property prices are going to deflate, and there's an inflation coming, and we're going to struggle. And what what that causes is what that causes is compassion fatigue. And the first thing that gets dropped from everyone is their donations. Okay. And it's Here happened. The last two successive budgets have put down probably a third of international development uh, forecasts and budgets have been slashed. Yeah, foreign aid gone. Who suffers first? The poor. Yeah. And so as individuals, we're sold this belief that I'm I'm doing it tough. 
you know, I'm, I'm on this $80,000 package, but I'm, I'm doing it tough. Um, without a recognition of how well off you are. Uh, of course, that's, you've got to be met with, you know, some pragmatism. Um, but it's a, it's a very interesting position that we're in because Australia is the fourth richest country in the world per capita. And we're fourth only to Luxembourg. And Luxembourg, as you know, would know, is a couple hundred thousand people. Uh, so essentially... I a, didn't actually know. But, <laughs> yeah. I, I did point to Jess, being a European. <laughs> uh, and I actually don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> and this is for people like us who don't know, which is why we've got you here. Uh, so the third richest country per capita, with the exclusion of Luxembourg. Um, so we... we Commonly told the story about how tough it is, and you know we've got to tighten our belt and watch our watch our uh, wallets. Um, personally, it's it's a constant battle. You know, I made a decision at a young age in my early twenties to leave the corporate sector, walk away from any type of promising career that could have been. I was probably the shittest accountant that PwC ever had, so it was, it was, it was an easy decision for me. But um, you know, but you had a promising career, right? That's <laughs> yeah. what they were feeding you. They told me that. They yep. told me that. Um, so. It's, it's, you know, it means a life without bonuses. It means a life without pay increases. It yeah. means a life without pursuing certain things that we're told are normal. Um, but at the same time, to wake up every morning, have a heart full of passion and a mind full of purpose, it's much more meaningful. Um, to answer the other part of the question, we have weeks where we're not profitable with Easter Merit. No doubt about that. The, the mm-hmm. restaurant's 25 months old. We turn over close to $70,000 per week. Um, we have about 2,500 customers per week. We've got three parts of the business now running at full speed, but we'll still have weeks where we're not profitable mm. and wages will be too high. We'll have cost yeah. blowouts. And, and this is the thing we talk a lot about that you're incredibly successful. Like part of our podcast is always to talk about what this incredibly successful thing really is. And underneath that is we are, we have done so well. And yes, we do. We reach days where we don't reach our profit. Mm. Um, again, not a businesswoman, but but that's that. That's part of it. So I love hearing this. It's, it's real. Yeah, it's what you learn. You know, the last month we lost a bit of money for the first time in twenty five months. We had a month where we didn't Us. actually yeah. make money, and so it was it was kind of interesting to step back and say, okay, what are we doing right? And what are we doing wrong? And mm. what can we change? Mm. Um, and who needs to be in what position to achieve better results next month? So, but that comes at a cost because our profit all profit is a wholly owned subsidiary of a not-for-profit, this business means if we're not profitable, it doesn't mean the shareholders aren't getting paid. It means there's less money for poor people we're trying to support across Africa and Asia. There it is. So it's an interesting battle there because we're not put under pressure by myself or other shareholders. There's no private investors. There's no impact investors. There's no bullshit dividends paid to any directors. Um, this means that we need to be profitable to support the entrepreneurs we're working with across Africa and Asia to ensure we're impacting lives. I love it. I almost like you should change the word from non-for-profit to just like profit for others <laughs> or profit, profit shared <laughs> organization or something like. I Brilliant. I, I you get it. it. And I think that's where I, my question stems from is uh, trying to not make what sounds incredibly successful and intelligent also vulnerable and um, the lesson learned, it's transferable to other people. It makes it relatable. Are you trying to tap on like what is the good life in a way? So if success isn't this thing that we're just striving for or monetary success, what are the other, in, like, what are the, you know, what is a good life? Which I guess we've been trying to answer for the last, like, 100,000 years of human history. But anyway, it's... Especially inside a capitalist one. Mm. I suppose coming back to what, redefining your values, I think that's a, um, or defining your values and um, that's what, you know, like, we've can clarity then comes conviction and then comes purpose redefining your own values to be on point with 
heart. Mm. One thing I was really inspired about when um, and Collective Potential ran a workshop at WAGAP the other day, and it was the first thing that you put on your slide was, we want to impact a million lives by 2020, and just how clear that goal was. Um, how did you guys come about that number and that time frame? Yeah, that's a good, great question. Um, licking the finger and sticking it in the air to <laughs> one degree, and that's, that's part of what a, a mission is. I knew uh, it. I'm like, <laughs> I still haven't written the mission for Collective Attention. I know, you, you've been getting it wrong by licking the finger and popping up your bum. Oh, he did not, and this I is did, why there's such dynamic um, conversation here. You know, We're just going to bring it back to Well, Jez, there's still air there. <laughs> <laughs> Please answer the question so we can go away from my butt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So, look, it's important. Um, Without a vision, the people will perish. And uh, it's a biblical saying, but it's an important one nonetheless. And um, any organization, any individual, any group, be it uh, for-profit, not-for-profit, or anything between, needs to set a vision so that people can follow. And for us, once we set upon our vision, our sort of objective um, to, and when we talk about impact a million lives, you know, that, that does sound like we've looked our fingers stuck at the wind, but we're literally talking about a million people that will have access to uh, quality education, will have access to, preventive, to healthcare, including preventable disease and violence and support of it, will have access to a good home or housing, or will have a job created for them. And we only measure a life once they've alleviated themselves out of poverty. And so giving a child a water bottle and sending them to school is not a life impacted for us. It's giving a child access to clean water for the rest of their lives. Uh, giving a child a, a lunchbox and, and saying, have a great day at school is not a life impacted. Mm. We talk about 12 years of both primary and secondary education to have one life impacted. So we work with um, entrepreneurs, um, emerging entrepreneurs who are running the most phenomenal things across countries we work in. We provide them very small tailored support through an accelerator program. We provide one year of tailored support, building websites, legal accounting support, impact measurement tools to take them through that one year of sort of growth. Um, We call it the valley of death and how do we actually help them scale. And then we invest in them. And it's not debt. It's not equity. These are grants, up to $25,000 to $30,000 in grants for an African entrepreneur working in townships at full pace is a year's wage and more. Has there been any particular stories that come to your mind? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a, a, a sort of 212 entrepreneurs that we're presently working with. Um, our, our mission is to work with 1,000 entrepreneurs to impact a million lives, but we're sitting at 212 that have come through our programs to date. Um, many that come to mind and, and sing to my heart, but one in particular, uh, only because I was reading everybody's story today, is uh, Malele. Uh, Malele is a guy that um, lost his brother at five years old uh, growing up in a... Um, township just outside of um, the capital of uh, Nairobi in Kenya and uh, he essentially got to against all odds growing up in a township and which is pretty much a slum got to university studying science and realized that looking back on his life that his brother didn't need to die it was if his mother had access to the right healthcare support his brother would have been alive today and so looking at the issue he decided to do do something about that Uh, not for his mother but for other uh, mothers who were growing up with young children so he launched Toto Health, and Toto Health is an SMS platform that provides expectant mothers access to healthcare information. And so throughout wow. their pregnancies, each trimester, every day, they can text in and literally get a response immediately from a nurse saying, my baby's doing this, my baby's doing this, stop kicking, I'm having these problems, I'm vomiting, I've got diarrhea. Um, provide you immediate support, 
can geolocate where you are and send you to different medical centres around Kenya. But more importantly now, they provide support for the first five years of the child's life. So any issues that child's having um, in that first five developing years of the child's life, they can immediately provide support. And when he came into our network, into our accelerator in Kenya in 2013, he was working with 600 women. Yep. And now the platform Toto Health is working with 30,000 women and children. Uh, and a fast company has said that um, Malela is one of the top 10 African entrepreneurs to watch. Um, so not only is he selling the platform awesome. onto government services, but this is a guy that's on a trajectory to get this platform to hundreds of thousands of women, not just in Kenya, but Tanzania, East Africa, and potentially Pan-Africa. Brilliant. This is so exciting. So one of the videos we watched prepping for this uh, conversation was Abundance by Peter Diamandis. Have you heard of it? I've, I know the name. Yes, I do. I, I heard him speak at a conference about a year or two ago. He's fascinating. He's got this view that as technologies and the growth of them accelerate exponentially, that more and more people are going to switch on um, and all the problems that the media portrays as problems now um, are going to be alleviated and that's not as bad. Mm. And he talks about the fact that we have more connection than ever before, there's least amount of poverty than ever before, Mm. um, healthier than ever before, and that this is going to continue as we give people in countries like Africa and around the world um, resources and technology to get out of their own problems. Mm. Um, it, it is a great point to, to talk about. We, we were talking about this dark shadow that's creeping over the world and we're all living in this fear at this stage. But in the last 20 years, um, we've halved the number of people living in poverty. Mm. So from about 2.1 billion people down to about 1 billion people who are now living on less than Woo-hoo! 25 a day. Brilliant. So, a lot of that's driven by the economic growth and development across East Asia, but it is something to celebrate. And we're on trajectory by 2030 to literally have no person in the world living in extreme poverty. It's never happened in world history. At it's all. Incredible. Um, you well, know, so it's, it's a, there's a lot to celebrate. And, and whilst we're sold certain things by different political leaders and different media outlets, there's a lot to celebrate right now. Well, even if you're a, someone like a oh, uh, uh, charity and you want people to donate, you're not going to be like, oh, well done, everyone. We're, we're doing well. Mm. It's the stories where you talk about how, you know, this little African boy is sick that makes people donate. It's the empathy stories and the compassion. So if you're, it's not really something you want, if you want donations, you're going to be talking about. Could, could I ask um, just what made you, like, I think people would be interested to know what made, what, you know, what, what made your heart care? Or was there a point when you left your corporate job that were you like, fuck it, I need to do something with reason or... Like, was there a point or a point of suffering in your life where, I mean, I know there was for me that flipped flipped my mentality, um, or was there, you know, how did it, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I as Em alluded to at the start, I grew up in a family home that was very philanthropic. Um, father was heavily involved in local issues. Uh, mother on the board of a number of different charities. Um, grew up with dad bringing prostitutes and drug addicts and uh, people of very marginalised um, corners of our community to the kitchen table. Um, never realised how odd that was until I went to a, from a public primary school to a private high school and brought a few friends home from Corfu Grammar <laughs> one uh, in Year 7 and, and literally had a schizophrenic drug addict come to the front door, Peter Jones. And I knew Peter very well. Mum and Dad went home, but I opened the door, let him in, made him a cup of tea. And my friends from Hampton, Sandringham and Brighton literally looked at me like I was an alien and would could not be in the same room as this mm. guy. And to me, I was like, don't, don't you guys do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and realized that the difference in life, you know, growing up, growing up in St Kilda, a couple of kilometers down the road, how foreign that was. Mm. Um, so a family like that 
nurtured it. Um, mm. I probably rebelled from a bit of it in my teen years, but um, spending time in volunteering in, in uh, occupied territories of Palestine, in India, in Latin America, now Africa, um, I think the biggest answer to that question is it's not what I can teach people living in disadvantaged communities, it's what they can teach me. And I say to every Wygat volunteer before they go overseas, do not think for a moment that you're ever going to teach these people more than you'll learn. Because the sense of understanding, the sense of community, the sense of belonging, and that individual basis that we have got things so completely wrong to a degree here in the West compared to what you learn by living in community and sharing and nurturing and actually having a sense of belonging would be so much more powerful. When you go to Rwanda, Kenya, India, and you learn from these people Mm. a lot more than you can ever teach them with your best university degrees too. Mm. So I've been driven by this pure attraction uh, back and back because I... Every time I come home from these parts of the world, you know, you can sit there in the silence of your big house. You don't know your neighbours. You sit on a tram with your iPod on. You don't talk to a stranger next to you. you we're so isolated from the perfect stranger sitting next to us. Mm. And it's a complete opposite. You spend time in mm. these underdeveloped countries, as we call them. But there's so a sen- sense of belonging. There's a sense of connection. Perfect strangers talk to each other. There's a, you wonder why de- um, depression and anxiety are on the rise here. We're moving away from the fundamental human desire to belong. And that's it. We're breaking down the structures. So, from pain, drawing between the lines of everything you're saying, like I feel like our world, uh, we're getting more and more mentally ill, and Western, like, or impoverished lands or whatever you want to call them, they get, uh, you know, like the indigenous people, they know, they got it right. You know, they live in harmony with the land and with one another. So, but. They got it, it right until we introduced. You know, social ills that have, that have yeah. hurt. But yeah, yeah you, you, the sense of connection and that, that dream time methodology and mentality has been very purposeful. But there's been, you know, a lot of issues in Huge the last 200 years because of what we've introduced. Yeah, sure. I've, I was, because it's interesting, you answered a question I, I was going to ask of what you were saying, Jez. You know, I think about um, all the kind of people that I know um, who, you know, caring about, um, being a global citizen, they've never even heard of it. And then I was thinking to myself, why would they even need to know about being a global citizen? What's the, what is its purpose, Emily? And, um, you know, with everything that goes on, I've got work on, I've got university, I have um, my new job, I'm trying to make it up uh, in the world. It depends how much I can drink on a weekend. Uh, my car, you know, it just goes on. We've got so many worries and stresses that we think are important. Then why should I care about what goes on in the third world? I actually feel guilty. I actually feel guilty even when you talk about it, um, that I can't do anything or I don't do anything. And, you know, I just realized I was going to ask you, what do you say to those people? But you answered it with... I I, I will challenge you on that, Em, because... Nothing I say should invoke a sense of guilt um, because if we all enable ourselves to be better humans, that's the world we're trying to live in. Yep. And it's not about what myself or any employee at YGAP or volunteer for Sacred Heart Mission are doing that's changing the world. It's how we're treating our neighbour next to us and letting that flow and effect happen. And you personally came down and facilitated a session with up to 50 YGAP and PCMERT volunteers and interns and employees three nights ago. So... There's a lot you're doing, um, mm. but that sense of guilt isn't what anyone working in the sector should be evoking. It's And that's, to your point, Ryan, about the messaging that we have from the charity sector, it should be about the hope, the resilience, the opportunity, and the optimism. 
and just looking at people differently as opposed to the, the pain, the agony, and the hardship from trying to solicit donations. It should be about the difference we're making to provide the change and, and seeing that imagery very differently. So, so, Which so I what, love because I wasn't saying that for my feel guilty because I feel like I'm around so many people who share that view with me. I was actually thinking about the people out there that I know who switch off maybe, maybe mm. because of that guilt or shame and bringing that up. Mm. And you just, again, answered the question with it's being aware mm. and what you can do. So just, just to understand the mentality for a second, then what, what, what is to decode guilt? Where does that come from? And why does it evoke that? Why do you think it evokes some people's response? I just think it can be quickly. Um, I just think that international development projects, sometimes I was, and I'm really happy to be challenged, but I want to talk to those people who don't realise that sometimes they switch off from the conversation because it could be about guilt or shame. So I'm bringing it up because I wonder if people always, who do feel that sense of, oh, oh I can't do anything, I'm not doing anything, that that apathy. might be. Yeah, the, it's apathy. I think the guilt may also come from what we're taught. So what we're taught is that you need to work hard, you need to earn money, and you need to Correct. be helping people. And so that, that education needs to change because so there shouldn't be a sense of guilt and a sense of weight to it. In, instead, it should just be a view around how we can actually do things differently, how can we can engage and we can be aware and we can be citizens of the world as mm -hmm. opposed to someone that's got to stand up. We have this yeah. ideological vision that there's always going to be a saviour. You know, and we, we prop up these leaders time and time again that, and unfortunately it's happened to Obama and it's happened to many leaders in the past that this person's going to save this scenario. Mm, and I do not, it all the time a, to it, people. Yep. And to quote your organisation, mm. it's a collective potential of individuals who will make that change as opposed to the solitary leader. And no Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton is going to save the US from the, the problems we're facing. But Donald Trump will. <laughs> if you listen to Donald Trump, yeah, there is one person that believes that, and that's Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's funny. I'd, I'd be fascinated by um, doing almost a roundtable. I don't know if you want to wrap up yet, but like in a minute, maybe um, a roundtable of everyone's idea idea of a global utopia. Um, I mean, because for me, it's pretty simple. It's just like basically we are all the same. We we have we're all the same country, which is just planet Earth, and the world's run by love. And people are grown up with just pure in, intuition, encouraged, and um, maybe there's rules, maybe there's not, but like there's there's just the sense of unity, and we all got each other's back. And so I suppose yeah, just everyone's own compass of love is well tuned <laughs> by the age of five. That'll do. Brilliant, great question. <laughs> I don't know. It's such a big question. I guess you can easily say, yeah, that's love. I'm just trying to imagine what that would look like. I can't. Um, but I, I get really thoughtful on how much the world's going to change in our lifetime, just from even in how much it's changed in the last 10 years and whether things like that change are happening. It's just slowly, we've got to let it unravel like a book. Um, mm. We're just not there yet, but we're on the way. Uh, even if it's not possible, it's interesting to think about. Well, um, it's far beyond us as individuals, but just if you were to be, if you were to imagine it, what would you imagine it? I think it would be a combination of getting back to actually experiencing nature again. Um, and uh, I, I'm trying to imagine a utopia with the amount of people on our planet. Yeah, right. But it would have to be a lot less people on our planet um, where we do all have all the resources or at least they, they say that we actually have enough resources on the planet at the moment to sustain everyone. It's just not shared, but right. I guess that's it, where everyone wants to share and sharing is the economy. Yeah. Um, Great. Would be my utopia. 
It's um. Look, I think we all are singing the same song here. <laughs> it's no doubt about that. A, a transition away from you know, certain um, economic structures we presently have, a, a view around nurturing and living in nature, a complete breakdown of all types of divides, uh, race, religions, gender, anything in between, to live in an equal and equilibrium world. Um, but I would, what I would do is I would throw in the, the notion of Benjamin Button and actually challenge people to, to reverse their lives and the power of starting at that age and, cool. and cycling down and knowing that, yes, you do get more conservative the older you get, but you also have more p- perspective and more wisdom. And so starting at the, an older age and cycling down and realizing that when you start old, you don't have the energy to fight, you've seen everything before, you know there's no, there's no harm in your neighbors and then all these absolute frustrations and fears you've held your whole life amount to nothing. And you get to the end, you're like... It wasn't worth hating my neighbor. And so I, I've always been so Fantastic. moved by that because I thought, geez, how powerful that be? Because when you do get to the prime of your life, you're not wanting to fight. You're not wanting to take aggression and you're not mm. wanting to really have disdain and, and frustration against the neighbor next to you. So but how would you implement that, Benjamin Button? <laughs> I think they're unfortunately as unrealistic as a lot of our utopian dreams, and that's why it's a <laughs> yeah, utopian true. dream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, we okay. can't get practical yeah. on get a utopia journey. So, no, no, no. <laughs> Look, I just think, um, yeah, it's we're all very similar. I hate to be the girl, but I really do think it starts within. Mm, you know, it is about your own values and living them out. And I like to think that if we could teach more people how to live by virtues versus Consumerism, capitalism, materialism—that would be my nice little. Or at least world. show them the virtues of that in ourselves, because I think mm. um, one thing is you can't really—if people don't want to change, they won't. Whereas if they see you leading a really happy life, and they see the collective, and they go, "Wow, they look like what are they on? They look really fun," and they'll decide themselves that they want to change. One one place to start, maybe a, a simple scenario of if she ruled the world. Um, you know, Hillary is an example, but yes. beyond that, yeah, uh, the power of global leaders, and I'm not just talking about political leaders, business leaders and sporting leaders all being female. Mothers, and, I agree, and man. seeing that energy change and that difference, that would be a nice place to start. Dude, that's such a cool idea. I've had that idea before and I'm like, yeah, if women run the world, we'll be sweet. Mm. <laughs> God, those bastard men. <laughs> <laughs> when, I just think that this has been a wonderful conversation and exactly where I hoped it went, which is all over the place, from global <laughs> views, um, the beauty of Islam, the evil yeah. versus good and how even Elliot sharing about, you know, even though you live by these values in your own struggles with the success of the beautiful initiatives you have, how you apply that still. Um, and I just think that uh, I've loved it. You know, it is a conversation that we don't always have um, amongst our friends and I love having it with you. And I think that you are um, a nice, beautiful balance of a masculine leader but you do have that feminine leader in you mm. that really listens and nurtures other people. And I just want you to know that I honor you. And I think you're a remarkable human who's just basically following what they love. And I think everybody who listens to our podcast, podcast, it's as simple as that. Mm. If you love something, follow it. And that's what you're doing. And you're having an amazing, amazing impact, let alone all of the people that are willing to join you in that values-based living, 
that work at Feasts of Merits, and I suggest everyone goes down and check it out, let alone um, check out the most amazing um, campaigns I've ever seen in Australia, truly, from Polished Man, Five Cent Campaign, and we'll put all these links onto the onto – the, um, On the podcast. Thank you. So, yeah – Everybody's doing an amazing job at your organization. I just want to thank you for your time. It was yeah. very cool. 100%. Here, here. Oh, humble. Yeah. So thank you, Em. If there, was all the, if there was a message that you could give to people out there, out in the tribe, about what YGAP does and how they can get involved, what would it be? It's not so much about what we do. It's more about what their passion is and follow your passion and push that first door and the next door will, will open. Beautiful. And if people wanted to get involved in what, with uh, campaigns at YGAP? They're more than welcome to. Um, jump on our website, www.ygap.com.au or any of the social channels. Brilliant. What a legend. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. 